So I'd like to change the format now, and if anybody has any comments or questions or things to ask, you're welcome. You're welcome to ask about any of it. You know, what it is to be a bhikkhuni, what's happening in Colorado, points of the conversation, the talk this evening. Whatever is alive for you or alive in your own practice, in your own families right now, any of it is welcome. It's a fairly conservative area, isn't it? It's the home of the religious radical right. (laughs) Focus on the family lives there. When I left England, it was quite um, sudden. You know, I didn't, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have a lot that I was going to. And because my father has been living in Colorado Springs, I have students there. And I had some students who invited me to stay with them in their basement, built-out basement apartment. And they were very, very kind and very generous and offered me food. And so I stayed there for, with them for a number of months. And then a small little cottage became available. And I moved into that. And I was always... Um, I'm sure if there would be enough support in Colorado Springs because of the fact that it's the home of the radical religious right to support an alms mendicant bhikkhuni, I didn't know if there would be enough support. And so there was always the sense of, well, I don't know if I'm staying or if I'm going or if I'm coming to California because I thought, you know, I should come to California. Everything is happening in California. I should come to California. (laughs) But I did a teaching tour here, and people were incredibly responsive to my teaching, but nobody invited me to come. So, you know, to invite to come is different than to invite for a day-long or a week-long retreat. You know, it takes a a community who wants to support a monastic and offer food and, you know, help make it happen. So nobody invited me to come. So I thought, well, I'll be in Colorado. And then things shifted and there was some unsettledness and I thought, well, you know, maybe there isn't the support. But there had been a number of groups that had been really very interested. And so they said, you know, what will it take to get you back? And I said, the groups need to be strong and cohesive and willing to support. And I need more help with practical things and I need more help with the Awakening Truth Organization we need to have a board president who can help with organizing things because too much was on my shoulders as a solitary monastic to do too many things. So in the months that I have been away, they have gotten stronger and there have been more people to step up to be part of the board and the owner of this little hermitage says, you're coming back. I know you're coming back. I'm going to renovate the place so that it will be supportive for nuns for when they come back. What's happening is I go and I live in faith and I'm intending to spend more time writing and less time going all over the place teaching and traveling. You see, the problem with me is, is I'm a visionary. And visionaries need to grow practical feet. And I was doing probably ten times more than I could manage and I was pulled in too many different directions. And so one of the greatest gifts that I received from being with the sisters was just how important it is to realize what it is just to be a nun. 
Now, the vision that I have continues to speak through me. But as a solitary monastic, it's too big. I need to wait until I have others join me. So rather than me go out and see if I can find them, I think what I'm going to do is focus the next few years on writing and seeing if they will come and find me. And so I'll do less teaching and traveling, more writing, and see if that will work. Now, obviously, if there's no funds to pay the rent, I won't be able to do that. So we'll see what happens. You may explain that the vows that you have that you can't you can't drive, you can't um, handle money, you can't grow food or make food or you're dependent on other people. I'm not sure everybody's totally aware of how dependent. So the um, different traditions have a different relationship with the precepts. The precepts we were all given were similar, and different cultures and different traditions have a different relationship with it. So in the tradition that I come from, I do not have direct access to funds. So I don't have a credit card. I do not carry money on me, and I haven't for 20 years. Okay. I do not cook my own food. I do not store my own food. I do not drive a car myself. So you can imagine that the very simple thing of eating every day is not so simple. (laughs) And getting to a doctor's appointment is not so simple. So in Colorado Springs, I have a bike, and I ride my bike, but when it is minus 5 degrees... And when there's two inches of ice on the road, I do not ride my bike. And so a whole support system needs to be available to help with offering food, cooking food, handling money, transportation when the weather is inclement, getting me to teaching engagements and all the rest of that. Now, one of the real blessings of living this way You can imagine the challenges, but the blessings of living this way is is that it constantly focuses my mind on the nature of grasping and the nature of letting go in a way that is unimaginable. Because if your basic daily needs are not possible for you to obtain by yourself, you have got to rely on faith and practice in order to sustain you when you are in times of challenge. And so I am able to live this way because there are people who support it. And I am aware that there may come a time when that will not be possible. I cannot live with the sense that that will always be possible. So certainly there are things that have to happen locally But there are ways that people can offer support from a distance. And so when I was living in Colorado before, I had an internet alms round. So people would offer meals from Toronto, Canada, from Texas, from England, and they would contact the person and offer a meal, and the person would contact a restaurant, and I would go with my alms bowl and pick up the food with the restaurant take it home to my house, and I would eat the food in my little place. 
So it wasn't requiring only the people who were just locally to be supportive because at that point there wasn't enough support for them to do that. And you have this website, uh, AwakeningTruth.org is the website and there's an e-list. And because I've been on retreat, I haven't been thinking. But if somebody has a blank piece of paper, if you'd like to sign up for the e-list, you can sign your name up and so you can get updates of where I'm at or how things are going. But anyone can go on the website and sign up for the e-list directly. The only thing is, is, is that if you do it that way, you're not part of a region, which means that if I come back to San Diego, I won't be able to notify you particularly about that. You'll be in a general email list rather than the specific one for this region. But one of the reasons why I was interested in spending time at Deer Park is because as rich as the tradition that I come from is and as as tremendously deep the training that I have, there are ways in which the tradition needs to evolve. And Titnan Han, the venerable Titnan Han, is an extraordinary visionary. And he has brought evolution into his monastic tradition, which speaks to contemporary time. And part of my motivation for wanting to go was not only because of my interest in being with the sisters, but because of my interest in seeing how he has allowed certain community structures to emerge that support what is necessary in this day and time. And there are many, many, many ways where the vision that he speaks to is the same one that speaks through me. Many, many, many ways. I wonder why you couldn't just stay at your The sisters were welcoming and they'd love me to come back. And I would love to come back. But how can I say this? Is it the difference in traditions? Yeah. Theravada and Mahayana? Yeah. yeah. There are differences in the traditions which I feel are... I don't want to, to say anything that puts one up and the other one not up. I don't want to say like that. But I do want to speak in a way that allows the, the beauty of each tradition to shine. Yeah. And certainly, you know, for me, it was like medicine to be with other sisters and to have everything happening and not have to be on my shoulders to do it. I see the same as needed in my own tradition. Whether or not the conditions come together that make it possible for me to do what I feel needs to do, I don't have the answer to that yet. And it's not up to me. It's up to those of us who feel that it's necessary for this to happen. Okay. At the moment, I feel my calling is to continue to speak to that vision and to allow it and see what happens with it. One thing um, that's brand new has evolved this year in the in the tradition from the village is, and I don't know how all aspects of it are managed.
support of it, the continuing the support of the community. I mean, tied to 84. So this is something that was put in place this year. If um, lay persons or, or any person in the, or any individual in the practicing community can give to the community at large uh, in a continuing way, in an automatic way, that's a modern age phenomenon, right? This is new for your part. There are many of us that are um, have chosen to give this way. Some some give a dollar a day. Some give whatever they give. But it, it's also very satisfying to know that then it becomes, I talk of my shoulders on a day-to-day basis. I don't have to handle the money. I can just smile and know that I'm doing it. You know? yes. So I just offer that. I don't know if that's possible um, in any way through the lake community or whatever in Colorado Springs, but I think it can be a skillful means but you see, things like that, you see, because, you know, the, lay, the, the board of Awakening Truth is a lay board, and, and there is nobody who's on that board right now who has much experience with monastics. So I am not only having to teach and to write, but to also guide the board, okay? And so having input from other people who have experience with other monastic communities and infrastructure, like how do you set it up on the website so that you can just give regularly. Information like how do you actually do that would be tremendously useful information to, so that everything does not have to be a reinventation of the wheel. You know, Because when I came to this country, I started from dust. There was nothing. There was no organization, there was no infrastructure, there was no lay group, there was no, there was, there, all I had was the faith and the, in, and the willingness to begin. There was zero. I started with zero. But some of my friends here know what it's like to start with zero. And you know how hard it is, but you also know that you take one step at a time you take little steps and slowly, slowly, slowly you grow. But you also know that you need to do together. You need to do it as a family group, as a, as a community group, you need to do it together. So if there are input, like from the Deer Park community, of infrastructure, of what they're doing with their website that makes it possible for regular donations, stuff like that would be absolutely invaluable. Am I understanding correctly that you're leaving tomorrow? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I have email. Right. So it's like, you know, it's not a big deal to get in contact. Right. And there are many things about the chants and the reflections and all the rest of that. And so, you know, I would love to speak to somebody who's senior in the community and ask if it's possible to get PDFs of all of that stuff that I can fiddle with it, that I don't have to write it all from zero, you know? I mean, in the Theravadan tradition, the languaging would be different than what he has done because as a Zen practitioner and as a poet and as a Zen master, it would be different. But there's a lot which could be similar. Yeah. And so what I would be interested to know is um, what the community would, would feel joyous in, in, in sharing. And I don't know that yet. Yeah. Yes. Have you been in contact with the uh, Occupy Movement at all? When I was in LA, 
um, I spent uh, a little bit of time with community members who were part of Occupy. And they invited me to Occupy. And I went and I, um, I did some chanting there and I gave a guided meditation there. And um, they, were, they were touched by that. And um, interested for me to stay in contact and interested for them to stay in contact with me. Yes, I think it would be a good fit for you. And they also uh, exist in many cities and many countries. Um, they, they might... Uh, it kind of reminds me of the situation in the 50s where Tikhan came here and made contact with the hippies and would uh, talk to them about stopping war in Vietnam. And he made a big influence on, on them and on um, also people who had really been, um, were sort of unaware of the power of peace. And um, he was able to bring that you know, to them in a very simple way. It was very touching for me because when I went to Occupy LA, there was somebody who was on the microphone and it was quite um, dispersed and a little bit agitated and um, it took a little bit of negotiation for me to get the microphone but I just started chanting Om Mani Padme Hum and everything settled and people gathered and they were just very interested to listen so I didn't speak very long on the microphone because it didn't feel like it had been set up for me to do that but I did a walking meditation and there were about 10 people that walked with me to the meditation hut and then there were about 15 people that squeezed into this tent for a guided meditation. It was, you know, very small. But they, they, were, they were interested in more, but it was a question of timing because of the, my schedule and how long I was going to be there. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. If I can't ever do your bar mitzvah? No. I didn't do bar mitzvah because my father, when he, he was bar mitzvahed, and when he was bar mitzvahed, he was so, um, he's an intellectual. And because the way the bar mitzvah ceremony and the, and this, and the, and this, the training around it was so um, faith-based rather than um, anything that made sense to him, he did not want to impose that on his kids. So he, he and my mom were clear that uh, we were not um, funneled through that particular channel. But ironically, or interestingly enough, when I was at university, after I had started meditation and had been doing meditation retreats and was very, very committed, so I knew in the marrow of my being that that was my path, I started doing Shabbos regularly, and I wrote my own Haggadah. And so I, I wrote a Haggadah based on the Four Noble Truths so the Passover ceremony was a Passover ceremony which was basically a celebration or an acknowledgement of suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. And I don't think I have any more copies of the Haggadah. But um, for a couple of years when I was at university, I, the, the Jewish Friday night celebration and the, and the Passover celebration was you know, a really important part of my life. 
Well, I'm certainly happy to stay longer, but I know that um, you know it's late and it's Christmas time, and I don't want to hold you. But I certainly appreciate your attention and your interest, and I wish you a very warm season, and just to remember the light of presence. May you stay with it and share it with everybody that you touch during this time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.